From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 2 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by El Cortez and the Golden Steer. A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. It's July 2nd, 1976. Music legend Neil Diamond is opening the Aladdin Theater for the Performing Arts, one of the finest stages ever constructed in Las Vegas. This is no lounge and there are no tables. The theater is $10 million worth of class and splash with 7,500 seats. Las Vegas is courting more visitors and the theater is a huge piece of that plan. Diamond Show is a sellout smash, a headline-making kickoff to a big bicentennial holiday weekend on the Strip. It's a big moment for Aladdin Entertainment director James Tamer, but Tamer's role is not what it seems. His background is not in show business, and his job at the Aladdin is much bigger and more sinister than his title. Tamer is with the mob, and there are other men like him on the Strip. Aladdin Theater is now known as the Zappos Theater. It has remained a unique setting on the Strip, attracting some of the world's greatest performers. In recent years, Britney Spears had a residency there, followed by the likes of Jennifer Lopez, Gwen Stefani, Pitbull, and Shania Twain. As a testament to its importance, the theater was left standing after the 1998 Aladdin implosion that paved the way for Planet Hollywood. Neil Diamond, back in Las Vegas for a benefit concert in March 2020, talked about his grand opening performance during a red carpet interview. Well, they threw open the doors and welcomed me in. It was an unusual setup for the performance. The building is still there. I had a great time. James Tamer and the Aladdin shelled out a bundle for Diamond's five-concert engagement, $750,000, making him the highest-paid performer in the history of the Strip at the time. And, according to a review of Opening Night, he didn't disappoint. When fans shouted out requests, Diamond responded, quote, Yeah, we'll do them all for God's sake. Jeff Silver, a Nevada Gaming Control Board member in 1976, was part of the sellout crowd who came to see Diamond. It was a packed house, uh, it had a prize fight atmosphere, a lot of excitement. It was a beautiful theater, something which we hadn't seen previously in Las Vegas. But Silver knew there was a lot more to the theater's opening. It was designed to be part of the city's future, but it was built on the city's past. Part of a $50 million hotel expansion, financed by the Teamsters Central States Pension Fund, a mob-controlled financial institution that had loaned millions of dollars to Las Vegas casinos. The Aladdin loan helped the Detroit Mafia get a big piece of the resort. The fight for Las Vegas was on. I'm Jeff Gehrman, an investigative reporter with the Las Vegas Review-Journal. 
In partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm your guide for season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, a true story about money. And so it was their piggy bank. They had the ability to get loans for whoever they wanted to get loans for. He just hit us like a tidal wave. Crime. You're in with every gangster and hoodlum in the United States. I don't go for that, Mr. Kennedy. I don't go for that kind of action. I emptied that revolver in his head, then he still was alive. And the battle to control the strip. I was on television accused of fronting for the mob. We were very angry and very upset, and we knew we had been double-crossed. I was really worried about the state of Nevada because uh, it, it was on trial also. I've covered organized crime from the streets to the boardrooms of the Strip for more than 40 years. In season two, I'll take you on a fascinating journey as the FBI and state of Nevada take on the mob families. Federal judges battle prosecutors, and two of the biggest names in entertainment fight for the right to replace the mob on the Strip. I began covering the mob in the late 1970s, as fascinating a time as any to be a reporter in Las Vegas. The Strip was much smaller and less congested in those days. The boulevard of modern-day mega-resorts like the Bellagio, Venetian, and Mandalay Bay didn't exist. There was no landscape median lined with palm trees to separate traffic, no overhead pedestrian walkways, no monorail, no thrill rides, no fire-spewing volcanoes, no dancing fountains, no high-fashion shopping malls, and no high-rise parking structures. You could actually drive up and park in front of most casinos. There were at least 14 major casinos on the Strip at the time, and organized crime families had control of more than a third of them. Las Vegas was considered an open city for the Mafia, and most of the two dozen crime syndicates had representatives here running street rackets, like illegal gambling and loan sharking. But some families had hit the jackpot in the casinos. Chicago, Kansas City, Milwaukee, and Cleveland syndicates obtained hidden ownership through Teamsters loans to four casinos bought by the Argent Corporation, the Stardust, Fremont, Marina, and Hacienda. The Kansas City mob had control over the Tropicana, and a lawyer for legendary Teamsters president Jimmy Hoffa operated the dunes. The Detroit crime family ran the Aladdin with the help of St. Louis mob associates. Were gaming agents slow to catch on to the mob's influence here? That's what University of Nevada Las Vegas history professor Michael Green believes. I tend to think the Nevada regulators were kind of caught off guard. In the late 70s, they had really just, I think, begun to reckon with just how much mob influence there was here. I think, in part, the mob was clever over the years. Uh, how clever they were in the 70s, I, I debate at times, because I think that their predecessors were a lot smarter. But yes, they moved things around. They, they knew how to move money around, and they knew how to keep people off guard. It's how they survived. During that period, casinos were earning hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and experts like Green and Jeff Silver tell me the mob was capturing up to 10% of the revenues through a variety of skimming operations. Trusted couriers delivered the stolen cash to the mob bosses back east, 
often directly from the casino count rooms. One slot machine scam uncovered by state investigators at the Stardust earned the mob between $7 million and $20 million in the 1970s. People actually gambled with coins in those days. Key employees who owed their jobs to the mob would underweigh coins by 30% on scales used to determine the value of the winnings, so the rest of the money could be pocketed by the mafia bosses. Another skimming operation involved the use of fill slips at gaming tables. When the table would request more chips to pay winners, a slip had to be filled out for the amount and placed in a drop box to record the transaction as a loss. Employees would drop fill slips into the boxes, but no chips would be brought to the table, allowing the mob once again to pocket the money. You name the game, and the mafia found a way to steal money. Another easy grift was to simply submit phony invoices for businesses that didn't do any work for the casino. Even pension fund loans, like those at the Aladdin, came with a catch. Hidden fees and demands for construction kickbacks. As all this was happening, the feds were making a big push against organized crime's hold on the Aladdin and other strip casinos. And the state was along for the ride. Nevada Governor Robert List had to deal with a raft of FBI allegations weeks after he was sworn into office in January 1979. It was a difficult challenge, even for someone who, as a former attorney general, knew Nevada's legal and regulatory systems. I guess in some ways I was this young guy who uh, no sooner became governor than this dropped. It just hit us like a tidal wave. It just hit us like a tidal wave, the, the enormity of it. I didn't think it wasn't anything that I couldn't handle. I was happy with it, it taking it on. And I knew that it was, it was a complete reform of, for the first time in Nevada that we were actually doing something that nobody else had ever done. List will be back later in the series with a surprise he sprung on me you'll hear why the governor of Nevada felt the need to wear a bulletproof vest in public. We'll be back after a break. The mob's dominance on the Strip would not have happened without the guiding hand of one man, Jimmy Hoffa. Hoffa rose through the ranks of the Teamsters in Detroit and oversaw the massive Central States Pension Fund and its casino loans. His deep ties to the underworld, high-profile battle with mob-fighting U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy. I know a lot of people in You're in with States. every place that you go, you're associated with the leading gangsters and, and uh, racketeers in the United States, Mr. and it's Kennedy. not so shocking that you should be involved. And fierce devotion to the nation's truckers made him one of the most iconic labor leaders in American history. Las Vegas kept growing and growing when Hoffa was in his prime. Jeff Silver, the former gaming regulator, was well aware of the pension fund's crucial role in that growth. The Teamsters Union seemed to be one of the few sources of capital that the gaming industry had, probably because of the nature of the people that were operating the casinos, they couldn't get financing from uh, more traditional sources. So the Teamsters was uh, front and center in a lot of these operations. 
former Justice Department prosecutor Stan Hunterton saw the disturbing underbelly of the fund's dealings while building a criminal case against Detroit crime family associates tied to the Aladdin. The Teamster Pension Fund collected huge amounts of money, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars for the welfare and retirement of its members. And then they would loan this out, not unlike lots of pension funds do, but there weren't any of the standards that we all think were very normal and necessary today. It's almost laughable that the mob could put people in positions where they had complete access to the casino and exercise management over it. And veteran Detroit crime reporter Scott Bernstein says the mob was laughing all the way to the bank. They gave hundreds of millions of dollars of loans to a cast of shady characters, guys with gangland pedigrees that were puppeting front men. And they did it without much, you know, there, there wasn't a ton of hoops that you had to jump through to get these loans. They were low interest loans. Uh, and they were giving them away to you know every wise guy and their brother. And putting Jimmy Hoffa into power in the 1950s, that was the end game. That power extended to Las Vegas, according to Jeff Schumacher of the Mob Museum. Were it not for Hoffa's influence, for Hoffa's approval of these loans, Las Vegas would have taken much longer to develop into the city we know today. Uh, as a result, Hoffa was seen at the time as a kingmaker. He was a decider of the fate of the city. And so as a result, he was treated with kid gloves here. Former Kansas City federal prosecutor David Helfrey says the pension fund was just as important to the mob's success in Las Vegas. Helfrey obtained casino skimming convictions against the mafia kingpins and became so familiar with Las Vegas that he ended up moving here after retiring as a prosecutor. The Teamsters Union provided the skeleton uh, for the mafia families in the various cities and became a horse trading which required the various mobs to work together. And so it was their piggy bank. They had the ability to get loans for whoever they wanted to get loans for. And the bank never seemed to close. One of the major players who helped organized crime tighten its grip on the strip was Alan Dorfman, the insurance executive the Chicago mob put in place to run the pension fund's day-to-day -day operations. History professor Michael Green recalls how Dorfman once sought a big favor. The Deemsters pension fund ended up with considerable power. One of the examples of this is that Dorfman apparently told Jay Sarno at Circus Circus there's a guy I know in Chicago uh, who would like to get the gift shop concession. And Sarno owed that to Dorfman and the pension fund. And that was where Tony Spilatro started out in Las Vegas. Spilatro was the ambitious enforcer the Chicago mob sent to Las Vegas in 1971 to oversee street rackets. He also kept an eye on Frank Lefty Rosenthal a brilliant underworld odds maker who was calling the shots at the Stardust in Fremont from his unlicensed perch as entertainment director. The outfit, as the Chicago mob was known, was the most active crime family in Las Vegas. 
it had an agreement with the underworld to control the streets in return for staying out of the territory of the five violent New York Mafia families back east. Spalaccia was the perfect street lord. He had a reputation for being a brutal killer, yet he was never convicted of a single murder. I spent a lot of time as a young reporter covering his notorious career in Las Vegas until his own gangland slang in 1986. He had the coldest eyes I've ever seen. In my stories, I got used to calling Spalaccio by his street name, Tony the Ant. He hated that, and it sometimes left me at the receiving end of Spalaccio's nasty stares and his menacing fits of anger. This would be the time to remember Frank Collada, the tough, cold-blooded hitman for Spalaccio and the focus of season one of Mobbed Up. Collada died in August at age 81, a couple of months after the first season of the podcast wrapped up. Back in 1982, I remember seeing him as cool as he could be, laughing it up with Spalaccio lieutenants at a favorite mob hangout the very night before the feds announced he had decided to cooperate against Spalaccio. Years later, I interviewed Collada after he left Witness Protection. He was as candid and direct in season one as he was when I interviewed him. His story never changed. When you're ordered to kill somebody, you better do it. If you don't, they're gonna kill you. They wouldn't come to you and tell you to kill so-and-so if they thought you would say no, you know what I mean? I didn't like this Jerry Listener guy. He had that weasel effect, you know, like, I don't know, I just didn't like him, like I didn't like Sal. I emptied that revolver in his head, then he still was alive. So I had, we had to reload it. Fortunately, we brought, he brought extra bullets, the guy that was with me. And uh, I emptied it out in his head, and then he finally died. Remember James Tamer, the Aladdin's entertainment director? He turned out to be a lot more than that at the casino. He was a convicted bank robber who federal authorities alleged was overseeing the Detroit mob's hidden interests. Tamer had business ties to Aladdin owners as early as 1970. He also had been the subject of illegal gambling-related investigations in other states. Tamer would not have been able to get a gaming license in Nevada because of his criminal record and alleged mob associations, but as entertainment director, he didn't need one. Bud Hicks, a top Nevada deputy attorney general in the late 1970s, remembers Tamer. Rosenthal set the example for some of these other guys in Vegas that were, you know, didn't really want to be licensed. And so, lo and behold, James Tamer shows up as the uh, director of the Aladdin showroom, director of entertainment for the Aladdin showroom. But, you know, there was a lot of evidence that he had, he had authority to comp casino customers uh, he, you know, had a lot of authority there and in clearly involved in administration and operations of the casino. The Teamsters funded hotel expansion at the Aladdin, by no small surprise, was plagued by construction overruns that put the resort on the brink of bankruptcy. There also was an alleged kickback scheme uncovered by the feds that defrauded the pension fund. More to come on that. Eventually, the Labor Department filed suit to stop the pension fund from loaning money to the casinos, and the FBI kept pushing forward. With the help of court-approved wiretaps, agents listened to secret discussions between underworld figures, describing how they were stealing millions from the resorts. Don't forget, uh, we reach sometimes we reach a point 
Well, we force an adversary to to react a lot different than he would under ordinary circumstances. Transcripts of some of those discussions wound up in the media. They can positively prove beyond any doubt that this guy is with the government. Yeah. They got some deal that they're putting together in Texas. Through court filings or leaks, FBI affidavits and other documents detailing the inner dealings of the mob also became public. The lure of chronicling those kinds of stories was irresistible. Just keeping up with Spalacho and Rosenthal seemed like a full-time beat for me. Bud Hicks spent a lot of time for the state pursuing hidden mafia casino interests. It was a very tense time. Uh, we knew we were dealing with some bad people. Um, and, uh, you know, we only could do the job that we had to do and, and press forward on it. Stan Hunterton was in the thick of it all as a government prosecutor in both Detroit and Las Vegas. He was a classic government attorney who shied away from the media, but did plenty of talking in the courtroom. He was as honest as they come. My colleagues and myself didn't know much about casinos when we were running the wiretaps back in Detroit that led to the Aladdin indictment, we would pick up phrases that sounded like something illegal was going on, but we had no idea what. A million a month? Yes. That the payments roughly? Yes. All right. You told me 18, right? That's what I told you. If somebody on the telephone tap would mention that the BJ hold was down, we'd uh, all kind of look at each other and uh, mutually admit our ignorance if we had no idea that BJ stood for blackjack and hold stood for the percentage of the play that the house was able to hold on to as profit. But we learned. So did those of us in the media. Still ahead, the feds are closing in on the Detroit mob and its ties to the Aladdin. You'll also meet a Vegas icon seeking to make a major move on the Strip. But there are whispers of mob connections. Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, Season 2, continues after a word from our sponsors. It's August 1977. Disco is at its height. Star Wars is setting records at movie theaters, and the FBI investigation into the Detroit mob begins to make national headlines. The Los Angeles Times obtains a copy of an FBI affidavit that publicly reveals for the first time the alleged extent of the Detroit mob's control over the Aladdin Casino. The affidavit discloses that the FBI had secretly watched crime family figures, including reputed leader Vito Giacalone, holding roundtable discussions at a Detroit steakhouse. Also at some of the meetings was, you guessed it, James Tamer, the entertainment director at the Aladdin. At the time, Giacalone and his brother, Anthony Giacalone, were running the daily operations of the Detroit Mafia and overseeing the family's Aladdin interests according to Detroit journalist Scott Bernstein. Giacomo Blackjack Toco was the acting boss. He was 
very, very close to Blackjack Toco. They spoke on the phone almost every day. They had co-ownership of a very prestigious and popular golf club, country club in Detroit known as Hillcrest. As federal authorities stepped up their scrutiny of the crime family's Aladdin ties, Jeff Silver and state regulators saw an opportunity to move against the casino's licensed owners. That gave us additional time to focus on the Aladdin and what it was doing and who it was involved with. Up until that point, they had been kind of hiding under the radar. In 1978, a year after the Detroit FBI affidavit was made public, Tamer, other Aladdin executives, and a bail bondsman tied to the Detroit crime family were indicted by a federal grand jury in a scheme to unlawfully manage the Aladdin Casino. Nevada regulators were determined to make Tamer pay for deceiving them. Fallout from the indictment created a stir that would change the face of gaming in Las Vegas. Regulators decided to take away the licenses of the resort's owners and made an unprecedented decision to shut down the casino as prospective buyers put in bids. Enter Wayne Newton, the Midnight Idol, still one of the most recognizable faces of Las Vegas more than 40 years later. Newton became the first entertainer to co-own a strip casino when he and longtime gaming executive Ed Torres bought the Aladdin in 1980, edging out a partnership led by bitter rival Johnny Carson. Yes, that Johnny Carson. But it was a stormy ride for Newton. It came with heavily denied allegations of his own mafia connections, a dramatic licensing hearing, and an epic lawsuit to clear his name against the national television network that tied him to the mob. And there were death threats. So I get back to Las Vegas and step off the plane and the sheriff is there with an FBI agent. They informed me that there was a hit list out with five people on it. And my name was the last on the list. And four of the people had been killed already. Coming up in season two of Mobbed Up, the fight for Las Vegas, state gaming regulators run into a roadblock from federal judge and former elite defense lawyer, Harry Claiborne, as they try to shut down the Aladdin Casino. Also, a bitter feud erupts between Claiborne and the federal bench and hard-charging strike force prosecutors. And then, a high-profile criminal investigation and congressional impeachment of the judge who prosecutors thought was corrupt. We'll also take you inside the high-stakes battle to buy the Aladdin between Newton and Carson. And you'll hear a dramatic account from Newton himself about how he dealt with those harrowing mob threats. But first, in episode two, we'll take a deep dive into the rise, downfall, and mysterious disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Mob watcher Scott Bernstein will help us. He wasn't going to give it up without a fight. And he pretty much told the mafia that he was declaring war on them. And these aren't people that take very kindly to being threatened. This has been part one, season two of Mobbed Up a production for the Las Vegas Review-Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you are enjoying it, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts.
Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Help us out by telling your friends and by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This series is reported by me, Jeff Gehrman. Field and audio recording by Larry Muir. And audio engineering by Greg Conway. If you have feedback, email me at jgerman at reviewjournal.com. We would like to thank our Mobbed Up Season 2 presenting sponsor, Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by The Golden Steer and El Cortez.